Well, good morning, church. I encourage you to grab a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews. Seems redundant to say it again, but uh, there's new people with us, and for your sake, I'll say this. This is our normal practice to teach through books of the Bible as they're presented to us because we believe it's God's Word, and we believe that every line and every word matters, that the message of God is found in the words of God. So I have no cleverness of my own, no speculation, no ideas or ramblings that would be interesting to you. I just have God's word. And that's what we want all of us, that's what all of us want this morning. And so Hebrews chapter 10 is the next passage for us as we march our way through this book. It's been a wonderful journey. Uh, Before I jump in here, I will just say this. I I, I had to step out during the announcement times to get a drink of water. My throat's been a little bit, um, whatever, tickly, dry, whatever you want to call it. So if I start coughing, someone quick, bring me water. But um, now everyone's going to bring me water. Just one person, okay? (laughs) Not like throw it, just bring it to me gently. But I missed the announcements, and so I'm I'm not sure if, if Pastor Ryan said this or not, but I'll just say it just in case. And that is, I know that youth group's canceled tonight. Youth group meets at 4 o'clock. But uh, our prayer time, our corporate prayer time is not canceled. And so I encourage you to come to that. It's a wonderful time where a number of us get together in the the far room over by the offices, by the women's restroom. And we just pray for each other. We pray for our church. We pray for our country and our neighbors. Uh, we, We lift up God's name in praise and adoration. And it's just a sweet time of prayer together. I know that for many of you, you may be uncomfortable praying in large groups out loud. That's fine. There's no pressure to pray out loud. Uh, but come and join your silent voice to ours, and, and let's pray to God together and, and express our unity together in prayer. So, 4 o'clock tonight and every Sunday night over in the, the West Room. With that, let me read the text for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Again, this is one of those texts that I originally had intended on preaching in two sermons. I do think it's best covered in one, although there's just so much here. So, listen quickly. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. 
Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father, My lips don't seem adequate to even read these great and wonderful truths. Truths that you have declared from before the foundation of the world. Truths that came into fruition finally and forever when your son died in our place. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the truths that it has been sharing with us that has been strengthening our faith as we've walked through it, that it's, it's been exposing those who are pretenders. But our prayer this morning, God, is that you would strengthen us. We live in a crooked and perverse generation, and it seems as though the world is growing increasingly dark all around us, but you have put your light within us. You have called us out of darkness. You have given us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would strengthen your people as we go into even darker days, potentially. I pray that you would strengthen your people to be the light that you've called us to be, and may these wonderful truths strengthen us against the attacks of the enemy, but likewise, may they also expose those who are pretending and bring them to the truth, the saving truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In April of 2009, I was serving as a youth pastor in North Bend, Oregon, and our church had the opportunity to send some men on a short-term missions trip. I eagerly signed up for the trip. One of our missionaries that we supported was working in southwestern Uganda, and he was helping to establish a Bible school there whereby um, men could go and be trained and equipped for ministry and sent out to, to bless churches throughout Uganda and Kenya and other places. And they had built this school, and they had, they had uh, founded it, and it was going well. Men were coming. They would come, and they would live on campus in these dorms. They would bring their whole families. And the, the one caveat was they'd had to grow their own food because it's Africa, and they don't have Safeway and Fred Meyer on every corner. 
And so these families would grow their own crops on the land of the school, this big 30-acre patch of land. And every year they would harvest their crops and they would live off those and they would live off the proceeds that they made from those, the things they could sell. But there was a problem because every year the local elephant herd also knew when harvest was. In fact, they would show up a week before and like clockwork, for a few years in a row, the elephant herd would come through, and in the course of one night, they would trample or consume everything within the fields. And so these families were forced to have to go back to their homes and go back to their own lands where they could grow produce and live and support their families, and they were, they were being forced to not be able to finish their education. And so the missionary, the, this Western man that we supported, who has since retired and lives, I think, in Milwaukee, good man. He came up with an idea. He's, he's one of these like gay bots kind of guys that can fix anything and like MacGyver really. Um, and so he came up with the clever idea of building an elephant fence and he needed the experts. And so he came to us <laughs> because he couldn't find any experts. But we assembled a, a group of men from Skyline Baptist Church and we went over there on a three-week trip to build an elephant fence around a 30-acre patch of land that was powered by solar panels and would be electrified, a nine-foot-tall electric fence with concrete pillar or posts. It looked like something out of Jurassic Park. It was wonderful and amazing. Basically, they needed someone to dig holes, and so I came. And... Uh, the trip was, I was looking forward to the trip. I was eager about the trip. I was excited about seeing Africa and being able to travel, but also being able to help these men who were training for ministry. And everything was great. The only thing I was not looking forward to was being away from my family for three weeks. Still, I think to this day, it's the longest time I've ever been away from my family, a three-week stretch. At the time, we had Britton and Elias. Elias wasn't even one year old. And it was painful for me to think about leaving my beautiful wife with two little kids for such a long time. And I took in my Bible a, a group of pictures that had pictures of me and my wife and pictures of my wife and pictures of my kids and, and I just tucked them into my Bible. And so multiple times a day I would open my Bible to read it and I would open my Bible to see these pictures and I would look at them, and I would pray for them, and I would think about them. And the longer the trip went on, the more I began to miss them. Let me back up and say this, because I know you're dying to know. The elephant fence worked. We built the fence with one day to spare. And on the last night, we, the next day, we were going to go and do a safari because we got done early. And that night, we were sleeping in tents which is weird, but we were sleeping in tents and we heard a bunch of commotion and we were roused in the middle of the night to a herd of elephants that had come for their annual meal. And we didn't know what happened, but we just heard some commotion and then we went out in the morning because it's safer to look for elephants in the morning than at night. And we found a section of the fence, a post that had been pressed in, but that's it. Nothing was eaten in the inside. Nothing had been penetrated through the fence. The elephants learned that night what electricity is. 
And I just looked on satellite images in Google Earth, and you can see a vibrant patch of land that is green and lush and filled with probably all kinds of vegetables. So it's working still. It's wonderful. But as the trip went on, I, my heart grew more and more fond of my family, and they began, it began to miss them more and more. And as the trip came to an end, I still had my pictures there in my Bible, and all the way home on the multiple flights that we had to take, I would pull those pictures out, and I would look at them, and I would think about my wife and my kids, and I would pray for them. And I felt a, a, a genuine sense of anticipation rousing in my heart as I was getting closer to seeing them. And so finally, our little plane landed in Eugene, where my family was there to pick me up. At least that's what they said. And I knew I was about to round the last corner where I would probably see them. And so I came around the last corner, and sure enough, there they were. Out past the gate, but they were standing there looking for me as I was looking for them. And as I got closer, I stopped, and I pulled out the pictures, and I just began to examine them. Does that sound right? No, that sounds stupid. Because it would be idiotic of me to take out the pictures and look at the pictures and think about the pictures when I had my wife and my children standing in front of me. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to remember where are those pictures. And the reality is I have no idea. Because once I was home, the pictures were not nearly as valuable to me as they were when I was away. As soon as I could see my beautiful wife and my children and I could hold them in my arms, the pictures were not nearly as important. So much so that I've now lost them and I can't even find them. That imagery depicts what's happening in the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews, probably a Jewish man himself who had been converted and is now writing to his Jewish brothers who had also come out of Judaism to follow Christ, realizes that these people are tempted to forsake Christ, the the genuine real Christ, to go back to a picture and sit and examine a picture rather than to sit with the man himself. That's what the author says here in verse 1. For since the law, the law just kind of a a summary word for all of the old covenant, the the sacrifices, but also uh, the, the stipulations and the commands that God had given to his people to govern their lives, to govern their worship, to govern their civic responsibilities. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It would have been foolish. It would have been disrespectful. It would have been nonsensical for me in the last five steps before I met my family to stop and pull out the pictures and to stand there for the next 30 minutes and examine the pictures. To neglect them who had come to get me. In the same way, it is offensive to the, to the writer of Hebrews that these people would be tempted to go back to the shallow, hollow things that point to a future fulfillment in Christ. Why are they doing this? Why are they tempted in this way? Well, lest you're too quick to judge them, let me just stop and, and help you to think about this. 
This is all they knew. In the Roman world in which they lived, Judaism was an accepted religion. In all the major cities across the Roman world, there were synagogues where Jewish men would get together and read the Torah and they would talk about God and they would, they would share and they would teach their children the things of Yahweh. It was an established uh, religion. It was an established and protected religion within the Roman Empire. And now they had heard the gospel, they had heard of Jesus and what he had accomplished as the Christ, the Messiah, and they had come out of their Judaism to follow him and to identify with him, but now decades, maybe two or three decades had passed since they'd done this, and they're living in isolation. Their Jewish communities had long since rejected them, turned them out. The Roman world still hasn't accepted them because they see this little sect of Judaism as just a a cult, basically. They don't really know or understand who this Christ is, this Jesus. Just some poor Galilean man who died on a Roman cross. Who cares? And so, they were tempted as you and I would have been tempted to return to Judaism, an accepted religion that they could at least hide out in and have some sort of, some semblance of of normalcy. Lest you think too critical of them, let me ask you, have you ever gone back to anything that you know is not good for you? I have. In fact, I do regularly. And every time I ask myself, why? Why do I do that? I'm on a kick to try and be healthier with what I eat, and I'm trying to lose some weight, and I've been doing a good job, but I've also kind of plateaued. And I've found that over the last few weeks, I've, you know, just yesterday, I pulled out the cereal midday, poured a big bowl of cereal, put some milk on it, I thought, yes, this is what I want. And at the moment, it was what I wanted. And then the next moment, I thought, why did I do that? That goes against what I want. But that's our reality, isn't it? We want things that conflict with other things. And ultimately, our wants are at war within us. And these people wanted to follow Christ, probably. They wanted to believe in Christ, but they also wanted to be accepted. They also wanted to be normal. They didn't want their children to be rejected. They didn't want to have to face the the persecution and the pain that they were facing in isolation. The Proverbs say, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. And if you're honest, you would say, yeah, I've been there. We've all been there. And the writer of Hebrews, like a a good Christian brother, like a pastor, is standing in between them and what they ultimately don't want. And he's saying to them with all these theological arguments and all of these doctrinal things that he's laying out, he's saying to them, this is why you should not go back to there. 
And he's, he's highlighting all these things from the old covenant that they were very familiar with. And then he gives a contrast to Christ in the new covenant and how it's so much better. Your present reality doesn't ultimately speak for your future reality. And they were being tempted to go back to a past reality that was better than their present reality. That's confusing, I know. Let's keep going. I've got three points here that I think lay out this text for us that we can hang our thoughts on. The first point, as expressed in verses 1 to 4, is the problem. What is the problem? Imperfect sacrifices. He's going to reach back, as he has been doing now for multiple chapters, into the law, into the old covenant, to the tabernacle and all the sacrificial system, all of that just summarized in the word law, and he's going to point to the ultimate problem with that system. And then he's going to bring us, verses 5 to 10, to the solution, verses 5 to 9 really, to the solution. The solution is one perfect sacrifice. And then finally, to the result in verses 10 through 18, the results, perfected worshipers. Let's look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, already he's laying out a, a, a distinction between this and that. The shadow versus the reality. When the sun actually comes out later this year, I'm assuming it will. And it shines on us, and behind you it leaves a shadow. And you can look at the shadow and know that it's representative of something else. And so, too, the law was given as a shadow. The law in and of itself is not bad. This is not the people's made-up religion. The people of Israel did not come out of Egypt and think, you know what, we should make a religion all the other nations have a religion. Let us make a religion and we can make a God and we can serve this God and we'll come up with some rules to govern us so that we can worship this God according to how we think is best. In fact, that's what many liberal scholars will say as they read the Old Testament. They say essentially it's just the, the craftiness and the cunning and the, the cutting and pasting of other world religions into a new religion. That Moses and all of his learning in his time in Egypt and the, the other places had taken bits and pieces of this and that and assembled it into a new religion so that these people could worship God. But the Bible says that God rescued these people out of their bondage. They were helpless and hopeless, and God, with a mighty right hand, redeemed them out of slavery, brought them through on dry land through the Red Sea, and brought them into a wilderness where he called Moses up onto a mountain, and there he, God, spoke from heaven and handed to Moses Ten Commandments representative of all the rest of the law, these 10 words engraved in stone, which were for the people, they were to govern the people's lives. They were to govern their worship. It was to govern their civic life and responsibilities within the nation. This was not man's invention. 
And so there's nothing about the Old Testament law that is bad. There's nothing about it that is impure or unrighteous. In fact, it is perfect, the psalmist says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. But the law was a shadow. The law was not the reality, the ultimate reality that God was intending. The law was a picture that the people, the, the true people of God could look at and make their hearts yearn for what would ultimately come later. We see in the, the prophet uh, John the Baptist, a man raised up under the old covenant who lived his whole life under the old covenant and died under the old covenant, but was in that transition period where he had the unique privilege of being the last prophet who would ultimately point on behalf of all the other prophets to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is a representative of people throughout the Old Testament who read God's word and got it. By God's help, they understood this isn't it. There's more to come. And John looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John and the psalmists and the rest of the prophets and Moses, all the writers understood that God's ultimate solution was not in animal sacrifices. They understood David when he prays in Psalm 51 after he's committed that heinous sin with Bathsheba and killed her husband. He recognizes offerings, sacrifices and burnt offerings, Lord, you do not require, you do, you're not satisfied with those, but the true offering of God is a broken and, broken and contrite spirit. A broken heart and a contrite spirit. David got it. And so too, all those who had eyes to see throughout the Old Testament, they got it, that this is a shadow, that it's not the reality, that there's something coming in the future, and we need to keep waiting. Here's the problem. The law, referred to as it, there in the middle of verse 1, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law was a shadow. It was like, as I said earlier, an interest-only loan, whereby the bank lends you this huge amount of debt, and you pay the interest every month on this loan, but you never actually dip into the Principle. You're never actually paying off the loan. You're just maintaining the loan so you don't go into default. The law was like that. The law was there to remind them that they have this immense debt of sin before God. And if they were to obey God by keeping these animal sacrifices and living under the law, it was, in a sense, maintaining the loan. But something would have to come later to pay that debt down. And something did come later. The problem, as it's laid out here, is this, that there is a holy God in heaven and that the earth is populated with sinful men. And that the only way for a holy God to dwell together with sinful men is that if these sinful men are perfected, are made new, have their sins removed from them. And the only way that could happen is if God takes the initiative because there's nothing that sinful man can do to cleanse himself from his own sin. And so there's this 
ongoing predicament whereby even the best of men had to look up to heaven and say, I don't know what to do. There's nothing I can do. But God, in the sacred halls of heaven, long before the creation of anything that you can see, set forth a plan. In the divine counsel of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, they concocted a plan. We'll get to that more in a minute, but there is a plan. The problem is through these animal sacrifices, which were prescribed by God, like a picture pointing them forward to a future day when the reality would come, the worshiper could never be perfected. It was impossible. Literally, it says, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Yeah, that makes sense. Logically, if they perfected the worshipers, then they wouldn't have to come back next year. In the 10th month of the year, and as a nation gather and assemble together at the temple and there watch their representative, the high priest, go into God's presence on their behalf and offer a blood offering on the mercy seat so that the unintentional sins of the people could be removed or looked over only to have to come back next year and the year after that. And for 1,500 years, the Jews lived under these rules and these laws. Some generations were more faithful than others. Some were horrible. But this was God's expectation. And the author is just picking up on this and saying, obviously, it didn't do anything. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to keep coming back since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But, verse 3, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The people came back year after year to go through the exact same ritual, to go through the exact same cleansing ritual whereby they would watch the priest go in for his own sins, then watch him go back in for the sins of the people, and then he'd watch him lay his hands on the scapegoat, and then he'd send the goat out of the city where it would die on its own and not venture back in, and it was a reminder that their sins were being removed from them. See you guys next year. Do it all over again. Why? Well, I'm going to sin this year. How about you? Not because they want to, but because they know that's who they are. And the annual sacrifices were an annual reminder of their own sins. It was a reminder when they watched that innocent animal. And it wasn't just a passive activity. They would have to go to the herd. They'd have to select the animal. They'd have to inspect it to make sure that it passed inspection, that it was actually a spotless lamb or or bull. Then they'd have to lead it up into the temple and then they'd have to tie it to the horns of the altar and there they would have to cleanse it and then they would have to slit its throat and they'd have to watch as the blood poured out. Meanwhile, this animal's fighting for its life. This is not just a spectator religion. This is a hands-on reminder. This animal is dying because of my sins. Every 
year. And that's just talking about the Day of Atonement. There were daily sacrifices for sin. There were weekly sacrifices for sin. And all of them reminded the people were not holy. And we cannot live in God's presence. Verse 4. It is, for it is impossible. For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Listen to the language that this writer uses. Back in verse 1 he says, It can never, by the same sacrifices, make the, the worshiper perfect. And then he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I can just imagine some 21st century person saying, well, that's what you believe, but that's not my truth. You can hear them saying stuff like this. As they come to the Bible, and the Bible speaks emphatically, and the Bible speaks without equivocation, and they say, yeah, but what does that really mean? It means it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, that's your truth, but my truth is different. The Bible does not change its meaning to fit your description of what you think is true. You either conform to the Bible or you're judged by the Bible. There's no other alternative. There's no other truth. Your feelings are not the, the arbiter. Your feelings do not determine what is true. Your feelings do not shape God into your image. He is who he is, and you conform to his, or you're judged. We don't have to be mean about it. I'm not trying to be mean. I just am tired of people trying to say things that aren't true as if they're true. I would not be a good pastor if I stood up here and said, whatever you want to think is probably fine. It's sickening to me. When the preachers of God's word in our day are saying, peace, peace, and security, everything's going to be fine. God is love, and everyone's going to make it. God is love, and not everyone's going to make it. Conform to his ways. He will not change to conform to yours. It is impossible I love things like this in the Bible because I can put a stake in that. That never changes. Can the blood of bulls and goats take away sins? No. Never. It's impossible. Good. I don't ever have to think about that again. That's the problem, though. That's the problem with the Old Testament that God gave. It's that it was inadequate. The bulls and goats were just pictures pointing forward to a, an infinite sacrifice, an infinitely more valuable sacrifice that would ultimately come in the person of his son. Let's move to the solution. The solution is provided in verses 5 to 9. Consequently, when Christ... 
came into the world. And here the author is doing something interesting. He's, he's going to quote from Psalm 40 in that middle section there, from Psalm 40, and he's going to quote as though the, and it's, it, he's saying this is the Messiah speaking to God the Father. This is God the Son speaking to God the Father in this divine dialogue that took place some time ago in heaven. In the secret council of heaven, when before anything was made, God was here and existed. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, you see, in this, this long ago time, whenever it was, we can only speculate that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit determined a plan whereby they would create the world and the heavens and everything in them. It wasn't just that they decided randomly, let's just do some stuff today. There wasn't days yet, but there was a purpose in all of it. And so God creates everything, and he creates it knowing full well that this, this humanity that he's made in his own image, male and female, made them in male and female, his image, only male, only female, that they would go astray, and that was not like, oh, I got to fix this. That was part of the plan. And that they would go astray and then God would work about a solution to redeem some of them for himself so that they could know his goodness and his grace and so that they could live in his presence and be his offspring forever. God, knowing full well that man and women going astray would be lost in their own devices that they'd be lost and enslaved in sin, no way to escape, no way to free themselves. And then there is this, in a sense, this divine dialogue where the son says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then I, that is Jesus, I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Here's what's being communicated. That the Father knows that this lost humanity can do nothing on their own to bring themselves back into God's presence. And the only solution would be that if God were to send forth his own sacrifice... That if God were to pay the debt that they could never pay, then they could be forgiven. And so the plan is made that the Son, the, the second person of the Trinity, would become a man, would robe himself in humanity, would take on human flesh, would be made in our likeness in that sense, in our humanity, and would live in our place under the curse would be tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin and thus by fulfilling all of that, all righteousness, would then go to a cross and be murdered at the hands of lawless men as a sacrifice for sins. This was the divine plan of God. And as we can only speculate, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are talking about this and the Father proposes a plan, and the son says, yes, that's a good plan, Father. 
That's a good plan. I'm eager to obey your will. Any idea or any concept of, of the atonement or of um, Jesus' sacrifice that portrays him as just some innocent victim that was murdered by a ruthless father is not the gospel. That's anathema. Jesus said to his disciples, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus willingly obeyed the Father perfectly and laid down his life as a sacrifice. It's important to make some distinctions here that the Son of God, when when the Son of God was in heaven, he is God. But then he robed himself in humanity and that he took on human flesh in the incarnation. And from that moment on, he was born as a man. He took on human form. He became a man, but he did not become God. He's always been God. And a lot of people confuse this, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses at my doorstep two days ago who did not and still don't understand this concept. That Jesus is God, God of very God, that he is equal with the Father, that they are one, that he is eternal, that he's always been God forever and ever. That he is the omnipotent one who casts the stars into place with his word. That he upholds the universe by his mighty right hand. That Jesus is in fact God. But in the secret counsel of God, God determined that the son would be born into humanity. And from that moment on, Jesus had become a man and now he is forever known as a God-man. Two natures. One divine, one human. In one person. Jesus Christ. And so as he's contemplating the incarnation, maybe as he's coming down into the incarnation, there's this dialogue. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't have to keep making them. Then I, Jesus, said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And it says back in Hebrews chapter 2, For it it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He learned obedience through what he suffered, it says later. Not that Jesus became perfect morally, but that he perfectly aligned with the will of God and accomplished, completed all that God had set forth for him until it finally led him to a Roman cross where there he poured out his life to death. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. This is an example of the writer of Hebrews doing some exegesis, taking Old Testament passages which were written down long before he lived and drawing out the meaning of the text and giving it to the people so they could live by it. This is modern day preaching. 
Not me going into a closet and saying, oh, God, tell me something. That's ridiculous. No, what we have is what we need, and it comes from the Bible. We draw it out of the Bible, and we give it to people as food, and they nourish their souls on it by faith. The writer of Hebrews is doing this very thing. He's, he's just walking in through this text. Behold, I have come to do your will. And then his conclusion is, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, what will? The will of the son who laid down his life, but also the will of the father who told the son what to do. Their will is united. It's one. They have one will. It's the same will. Here's the solution that God sent forth his son born into human likeness. In the fullness of time, Galatians 3 says, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to become a curse for us. God knew the solution long before God let the people live with the problem, with the picture, for enough time as would prepare humanity to receive the Son. God does nothing by accident. God's timing is perfect. He wasn't a minute too late. He wasn't a minute too early. It was at the perfect time God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. What did that accomplish? The result of God's solution is laid out for us in the next verses which follow. And by that will, we, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is a tremendous verse, and it's a tremendous passage, one that has helped my soul much over the last 22 years. That God, through the obedience of his son in offering up his body as a sacrifice, sanctified me through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, sanctified a past tense experience that he made me holy. In you who were in Christ, he made you holy. That he set you apart for his own possession as a holy offspring. Destined for blessing and life. What's the, solu- or what's the result of this great solution? That we're made Holy. He goes into an argument to bolster up his claim here. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service. And here we've we've talked about this a few different times in the book of Hebrews. The writer has brought this up again and again as he's making these comparisons between Christ and the priests in the tabernacle. He, He lays out all the different furniture that was in the tabernacle. And there were several different pieces of furniture and all of them had a specific purpose But you know what there wasn't? There wasn't a bench. There was no bench whereby the priest could say, you know what, it's it's time for a break. I can take a break for the next 15 minutes. I've been working hard all day. I mean, the union boss says it's time, and 
There's no breaks in the temple. There's no place for them to sit down. And he makes the argument, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You see how he just keeps repeating this? He wants this group of Jewish Christians to fully cut ties with their Judaism. To cut ties, at least with their Judaistic sacrificial rituals. There is nothing for you back there. Burn the boats. It's time to move on. There is nothing in that hollow system that will benefit your soul in terms of sacrifices and offerings. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice in contrast to the many daily sacrifices that were repeated endlessly year after year after year. In contrast, we have Christ, the perfect priest, who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. And upon doing so, he sits down, which signifies the end of his work. There's one seat in the tabernacle that's mentioned. It's called the mercy seat. It was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was there that the angels were were constructed, these golden cherubs which spread out their wings to cover, uh, figuratively to cover God's holiness so the people couldn't just look, the priests couldn't look on to the holiness of God. It was there to shield the, the people or the priest from the presence of Yahweh who dwelt there in the tabernacle through the Shekinah glory. That cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. And where did he dwell? On the mercy seat. And where did the high priest take the blood? He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the only conclusion I can come to is that when Jesus went into the greater heavenly tabernacle, he took the blood into the holy of holies and he sat down on God's seat. This is a profound thought. It tells us, first off, that the work is complete and accomplished. It tells us that the blood was satisfying to God the Father, that his wrath was propitiated, turned away. But it also tells us this, that Jesus Christ is no mere man. That his nature is that which is accepted as equal with God. And that he can sit on God's throne and there's no distinction. There's no fighting. There's peace between God and God. The writer quotes from Psalm 110 and verse 13. After saying he sat down at the right hand of God, he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then he brings us to verse 14. Listen to this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And here, having a little knowledge of Greek grammar is really helpful. Because we find in this short verse three different tenses being used, which couches all of our theology and all of our salvation in this wonderful thought that by a single offering, the aorist tense, this offering that took place back then, that was completed and finished, it's done, he sat down, the offering's no more. He has perfected the perfect tense, meaning something that happened in the past and has ongoing ramifications. He's still perfecting saints, isn't he? This very day, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will be perfected for all time because of that past tense experience, because of what he did in offering himself on that tree. He's still perfecting people long into our lifetime until he comes again. Well, who is he perfected? He has perfected those who are being sanctified, a present reality, present tense. You see, throughout this book, the author is doing something that is very important that we should do as well. He recognizes that within this group of so-called Christians, there are people who have genuinely been born again. There are people who have genuinely had their sins forgiven. But there's also people who came out on the coattails of their parents and of their spouses And they left Judaism because it was easier than seeing their families walk away. And maybe on the surface they had an understanding of the gospel and maybe they even said, I believe that. But now that persecution is coming and now that trials are setting in and now that the loneliness is getting to them, they're the ones leading this charge to go back to Judaism. And for these people, he wants them to make the distinction. He wants them to do some soul searching. He does not have the divine wisdom of God to just go around through the congregation and say, you're a real Christian, you're a fake Christian, you're a real Christian, you're a real Christian. And so he gives them some difficult truths, some things that are hard to swallow, but good for our own discernment. How do you know if you have been perfected forever? How do you know if your sins have been forever removed from you? Well, ask yourself the question, are you being sanctified? In the previous text, he says a different one. He says those who are longing, uh, or those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's returning a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you eagerly wait for the Lord's return? Is that something that makes your heart leap with joy? And are you being sanctified? Are you more like Christ externally than you were five years ago? His internal working in our sinful hearts to make us new in Christ works itself out of our pores. It's an internal reality that starts to become more and more an external reality. He has sanctified us. We have been sanctified. Past tense, we've been made holy. And here it says, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Same word, used in a different context. Sanctified in the original sense, in the first sense, in in verse 10, 
to speak of those who have been set apart for God. We could use other terms like born again or made new in Christ. They've been saved. You could say they've been justified. But now he uses the word sanctified to help them understand if they really are justified. Have you really been perfected? Are you being sanctified? And the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also bears witness to us. Further evidence. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is God's doing. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Does the Spirit impress this upon your heart this morning by faith that this is true of you? Does the Spirit of God internally, not just something that you're making up in your head, but the Spirit of God internally resonate with this and say, this is true of you. Your sins have been forgiven. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ and he has made you new forever. This is a glorious reality, church. Couched in a book, right in the middle, the center of a book that has some really hard things to say and causes all of us to squirm a little in our seats. Uncomfortable with self-introspection. But the Spirit of God and the people of God confirms the truth of God that He has made you His forever. And if that's true of you, that will never, ever change. But if you're pretending, if you're pretending to be something that you're not, if you're learning the lingo without uh, participating in the spiritual realities, then you are at great risk. But even for you, there is hope. Because you stand on your own right now, but God will make you able to stand in Christ if you would but turn to him. If you would come to him and acknowledge your sin and confess to him that there is nothing you can do on your own to save yourself and you beg of him to save you, there is no reason he will not do that. He ends with these words, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let me just read a text for us that came to my mind in my study this week. I think is talking about this very idea. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Amen. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? But he goes on having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. 
We read that initial list and we think he's talking about the world, but he's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the people who call themselves Christians and he says there's coming a day in the last days when the church will start to look like the world. They will still have a form of godliness. They will have, as it were, a picture that represents their godliness, but they won't have the 3D reality. They won't have the power from within that actually helps them overcome sin. Their life will not be sanctified practically. They'll be just like the world with the shell of Christianity. This reality is what shapes my heart as a pastor. Just so you know where I'm coming from. I do believe we're living in the last days. And I do believe that the church looks far too much like the world. Not necessarily our church, but every one of us needs to examine ourselves. And how do we do this? By trusting in Jesus Christ who made us holy and by putting our trust in him and keeping it there. Not turning to our own devices. Not sanctifying ourselves through just self-help and doing stuff better. But by understanding the truth of God from the mountain peak of this theological mountain that he has made us perfect in his son. And because of that, his perfection will start to seep out of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for your son who is our hero and our savior. He is our champion and he has fought the good fight and he has accomplished for us our salvation. Help us, Lord, to live in light of this. Help us to trust him daily, to walk with him by faith. And I pray that these truths would become very dear to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.